and keep um, uh, keep kind of going at it. And uh, I just um, recorded the first eight minutes of our class on mute. So <laughs> this is pretty indicative of the way my whole morning has gone. So, all right. So any thoughts about John Donne before we uh, move into Romans chapter 6? All right. So we are on verses 12 uh, through 14. Let's see how far we get today. Um, Paul writes, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So Paul starts out this verse, he says, sin must not, must not reign, it must not rule uh, in your mortal body to obey its passions. Now, this, this is a little strange in, in the way that, that it was originally written, because the word that we translate um, reign, or um, it, it, you know, let not sin reign, um, it's a third-person imperative verb. Now, imperatives are commands, right? Uh, and, and so when we think of command, uh, we, we tend to use those in the second person. I tell you what to do. You tell us what to, to do, um, you know, it, it happens in a kind of a second person type of a, of a setting. Um, but uh, uh, the command here uh, is, a, is a third person singular. Um, and so that, that comes across a little bit weird in terms of um, the way that they translate it for the ESV, let not sin um, reign in your mortal body. Um, I'm not sure that that captures that, that really strong sense of a command. Um, so when I translated it, I translated it, sin must not reign in your mortal body. Um, notice that, that, that sin is, is translated as a hostile force. Um, when we think of sin, I, I, I wonder sometimes how we perceive uh, what this is in us, if it's just kind of this inert thing, you know, like, uh, you know, like a tumor or something that just kind of sits there, you know, although it, even a tumor, if it's cancerous, can be something that is, we call it malignant, right? Uh, um, and it's living and active and, and growing. And um, I think that that's actually a better image for what sin is like, like a cancerous tumor that is, you know, it's got to be more than a tumor. It has to be through your whole body. And it is seeking your destruction. It, it's actively uh, working against you. And in the context of Romans 6, what it's seeking to do uh, is to move you from this new life that God has given to you uh, to death. This is going right back to Genesis chapter 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman, right? God puts this division because we'd completely gone over uh, to the side of, of death. We'd become its its ally in a sense. And 
what he's saying here um, is that sin is is still at work to to pull us back and sin it it tries to guide us and it it, it tries to give us that misplaced allegiance that we see in in genesis chapter 3 when adam and eve sided with the serpent instead of trusting in in god's word so the picture is that there will be obedience it's just a question of who to whom will we be obedient Will we, will we be obedient to our sin or will we be obedient to God? Um, and, and all of these things are, are at work in us. And we see this in the way that Jesus talks about sin too. Uh, one of my favorite passages, John chapter 8, verse 34. Um, Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. You know, um, that was spoken in the context of the Jews saying we've never been slaves. They've basically forgotten their whole story of salvation. And I think that we do kind of the same thing. You know, I'm free to do whatever I want. You know, well, not exactly. You know, in, in your own power, you're, you're, you're free to sin. But as the new creation with Christ at work in you, um, you've been set free to be obedient to Jesus rather than to your own sinful nature. So I think it's important for us to, uh, to, to remember and to be mindful that there really is external pressure uh, to keep us from living in righteousness. There is uh, something at work, and it's a three-pronged attack that's working on us to keep us from embracing who we are in Christ. So we, we identify it as the devil, right? There are spiritual forces at work in this world, fallen angels that would lead us away uh, from the righteousness of God. There's the world, you know, all of the temptations that, that are at work in here and the, the pressures from, from different people who don't want to embrace this righteousness and they don't want us to because then they feel condemned by us. And then there's our own sinful nature, that part that's inside of us that wants to continually go back to, uh, go back to our sin. Um, and remember that when we start talking about living in righteousness, um, that righteousness is a free gift that God gives us it's, we're declared righteousness. We're declared righteous as a free gift. Um, and, and so um, there's pressure to keep us from living um, as people who are forgiven, freely forgiven. We're, we're, we're under pressure to, to live as, as people who um, have this righteous relationship with God. We're under a pressure to keep us from living um, in a relationship to our neighbors in that, that type of a righteousness that's a free gift. And I think that the reason is this type of righteousness that comes to us as a, as a gift, it's, it's amazingly freeing. It's, it's a liberating gift. Because if I don't have to worry about my, my righteousness... I know it's a free gift. I'm kind of free to make mistakes, aren't I? I'm not saying you're free to sin, 
But I'm saying that when it happens, you can say, I'm a forgiven child of God. I don't need to be fearful of what my Father in heaven is going to do. He's already spoken that word to me. Um, it, it, it's also, um, you know, when we live in our, with our neighbors in, in this righteousness as a free gift, it frees us up to not have to worry about what they think about us too. Not, not in the obsessive, fearful kind of way anyhow. Maybe, maybe in a loving and concerned kind of way because we want to make sure that they hear the good news through us. But we're, we're not concerned about, you know, Oh, they, they think that, you know, I'm a goody two-shoes or, or, or that uh, I, I'm, you know, think I'm better than them or whatever. No, I, I am forgiven. I'm not perfect. Although maybe if they look at you and, they, and you're somehow presenting that you think you're better than them, if that's the message that they're getting, that might be worth thinking about. And that might, that, that might be a, a call to uh, repentance. So Augustine wrote about this passage. He says, uh, we must engage in a constant daily struggle not to obey those desires which are forbidden or improper. For from this sort of fault, it comes about that the eye is turned to where it ought not to look. And if this fault grows strong and prevails, even bodily adultery is carried out which is committed in the heart as much more quickly as though as thought is quicker than action and has nothing to hinder or delay it. So, you know, for, for Augustine, uh, he, he's looking at this, this part of our, our human nature and, and um, kind of that warning, be careful, little eyes, what you see, right? Um, where do we place our eyes when it comes to our, our relationship with Jesus? Augustine's kind of focused on sex in, in this passage, but you, you, can, you can extend this to all kinds of different parts of our lives. Where do you look for your hope? Where do you place your eyes when things are going wrong in the world? When things are going wrong in your life? Do you place your eyes on your bank account? Okay, I have enough in reserves. Do you place your eyes on your you know, health insurance you know those can both be good gifts right those are, is it a good idea to have some savings mm -hmm. if you can do it right i'm not saying that it's wrong to save but i'm saying that you know that's not where you place your hope your hope is on the one who put you, you know, who has blessed you and who is at work in your life and who ultimately gives you the forgiveness that's going to bring you into everlasting righteousness that's going to bring you into everlasting life. Um, so we often, we often think of um, rebels as uh, those individuals who go their own way, who do the things that they want. I'm, I'm looking at some baby boomers here, um, and some children of the 60s. Um, I was born in 72, so you know, hey, I missed all that craziness. I was born in 42, I missed it too. <laughs> yeah. So does that make you part of the greatest generation? Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay, all right. Okay. The greatest because I was there. Oh! <laughs> but, you know, there, there's this, um, 
there's this whole uh, movement with the, the baby boomers, and this is painting with a really broad brush. brush. Um, so, um, uh, you know, the whole, when you get into the 60s, you got the, the, the kind of the hippie movement, the, the anti-establishment stuff, and, and, and all of that type of, of things going on. And, you know, the rebels were the people who, you know, they were kind of on the fringes and protesting Vietnam and, and, and all of, of these kinds of things. Those are the type of people, you know, you know motorcycle you know I don't need anything you know all that type of stuff you know they go their own way they do what they want to do and the funny thing is when you look at you know what is it they want to do it's sin right you know, it, you know I, I want to do what I want to do and I don't care what anybody thinks about it and you know and, and what they want to do is, is sin that's when I, when I say you know you are free and what you're free to do is sin that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. When, when we're really in a position where we choose, what we choose over and over again, very consistently, is sin. Apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit at work in our world. And it strikes me that real rebellion in this world is actually obedience to God's word. You know, if you want to be a rebel um, in, in this world, deny yourself. That is countercultural. Uh, take up your cross and follow Jesus. As Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24. Um, and, and this is seen when we, we, when we resist the desires that are rooted in our sin. And instead we live in grace. We live in forgiveness. Now, I think it's interesting that he says, you know, that sin must not rule in your mortal bodies. Um, is there a sense here um, that uh, that our mor mortality is important in this conversation about about sin ruling over us? Look ahead to Romans six twenty three. What what does that teach us about this whole conversation about sin? Some of you might have this passage memorized, actually. Is that the wages of sin is death? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is mortality, ultimately, right? Mm -hmm. you know, and and, and he is, he's very much hitting that, that the reason that we die is because we sin. You know, and, and the, the free gift of God, then, is this forgiveness of sins that gives us life. And not just life in, in, this, in this world, in, in this, this experience that we have here, but everlasting life in a new creation. So he's, he's very much, this life and death, this mortality and immortality uh, is on Paul's mind. Now, is there value in thinking of sin having its own passions? Thinking of sin as having its, its, its own desires, cravings, and lusts? What do you think? What do you mean, is there value? Is there value for you, as you think about what sin is, to think of it as something that has an agenda for you? As an outside will or an outside force that's at work on you? I don't know if it's the sin that does, but certainly Satan does. And I guess I think of sin as being 
inanimate, but used, you know, used by Satan to mm -hmm. work his wiles. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know that I think of sin as, like you said, was, it, it was cancer itself, evil, does it think, does it, you know, does it have that, or is it just, it is, and so I guess I kind of think of it, that no, I don't think of it as sin itself as having that much, I don't know, personality. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't have a mind. Yeah. It doesn't have a will. It, it's like being angry with the snow because you have to shovel it. It doesn't have any power of its own or will or anything. It happens, and then you have to deal with it. He's smirking over there, so he's going to shoot us both down. <laughs> what does verse 12 say? I think it only the scripture in Cain, but there were, God's talking to Cain, he says the sin's crouching outside your door and you have to master it. Like, it, you know, like, and, you know, the, the that idea of almost like a, you know, like a lion or something that's, you know, seeking to attack and devour. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of, this whole sin discussion reminds me of, at some point, somebody asked C.S. Lewis about did this sin, was this worse than this, and was this, and he said, well, I, you know, I think pride is up there. <laughs> and, and pride is such a secretive or um, subtle thing. You wouldn't, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of my school, or I'm proud of my uh, children's uh, advancements. And that, that's a good thing, I think, but you can get to the point where pride is overwhelming and, mm -hmm. you're, and you're proud of the wrong things. That's really down to earth. I, you know, it's easy to think of say, well, I didn't murder anybody last week and I didn't uh, do anything grosser, but there's all sorts of little and subtle things that work against you. So if you know that there's something that's working against you, is that worth paying attention to? Yeah, I Absolutely. think, it, I think it, because it grounds you to know the difference. You know, greater is he than is in you than is in the world. It's a beautiful passage, First John, right? So, taking taking all of these these images, all right. So, um, Paul's saying, you know, don't let. Uh, uh, sin rule over you. You must not let sin reign in your mortal body. Um, uh, you've got kind of what you were talking about, like as a cancer in an evolutionary sense. Um, you know, the the whole idea is to outlive the other thing, which is ironic because the cancer thing and trying to outlive it, outlive the body, kills itself, right? Um, and uh, which is one of the things that sin always does, and idolatry always does, is, is it always kills. Um, the, uh, the the worshiper um, and uh, 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 knowing that this sin kind of manifests or it's it's used by the devil the world even our own sinful nature recognizing that there is this force that is is at work against us but also as Teresa says that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world I think it makes sense to pay attention to what's at work in our lives. You know, what, what is coming at us? Um, there were a series of books written by an, an author, I want to say in the, 
in, in the 80s, maybe even into the early 90s, a guy by the name of Frank Peretti um, uh, about spiritual warfare. I am not endorsing his view of this as 100% biblical, but I think he gives us some good images to think about in terms of what happens um, you know, that, that there is a, an actual real conflict that we are engaged in. Um, and uh, I, I, think, I really think he gives people too much power in, in that picture. Um, but uh, uh, there is a scene in one of his, his lesser known books, and so I think it's called The Prophet, um, where a gal goes to a concert and she's listening to the music and a question starts repeating in her mind, where are you leading us? Where are you leading us? Where are you leading us? You know, that there is a will that is at work to try to lead you somewhere. Uh, lead you into some kind of an obedience. And it's not necessarily the healthy obedience that comes from obeying Christ. You know, that there, there are agendas all over the place. We talk about this in politics, right? You know, that guy clearly has an agenda. That lady, she has an agenda. Everybody has an agenda. Um, and uh, when you're listening to, uh, to your top 40 on the radio, where are you leading us? What's the agenda of, of, of this song? Or, or when you're watching a, a, a show, a TV show, is it worth knowing that artists who put these things together often have an agenda? that they are often trying to lead you somewhere in the way that you think, the way that you feel. And that maybe, perhaps, where they're leading you is sin. I mean, if we're going to try to be obedient to Christ, am I making sense? Or am I just making people uncomfortable? Or <laughs> No, there's lots of songs out there that are take drugs or go to do wild sex or go do whatever. There's tons of songs that yeah. are out there. Uh, artists that are pushing that agenda or anti-Christian or anti-whatever yeah. sort of religion. How, how about this one? Uh, do it my way. No, my way. My way, yeah. Sinatra. Sinatra, yeah. I mean, everybody likes to, you know, take a ding at uh, rock and roll or, or country music, uh, uh, you know. Have a big drink. Yeah. Ein zwei Zufa. But it's not the stuff or the ideas that are the danger. It's the people and the spirits that use them. Um, Alcohol can't have an agenda. Uh, adultery doesn't have an agenda. But the evil from uh, Satan and his emissaries is what's using it as a tool against you. And you have to look beyond it to see him and stick your tongue out at him. I, I think that there's I, I think that there's a warning here uh, for us. You know, when when he says you know. Sin must not reign, that there, there is an agenda in the world and that we are engaged in a, a, a resistance action, so to speak. Um, it's a resistance action that uh, um, is, it cannot be engaged in our own strength. 
You know, and when we look at this this whole picture, yeah, resist, struggle, fight, but ultimately it's going to be because of this righteousness that God gives that we overcome. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, I got my act together. I like First uh, Peter four, which really uh, touches on this um, as well. Um, the, the sort of the, the quotable quote is um, uh, we are uh, Gentiles uh, for the time is, that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies drinking parties and lawless idolatry with respect to this they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you yeah. say, this pressure just comes in yeah. yeah, and I think I think being aware of that and being clear-eyed in terms of how we engage the world. Yeah, because I think I think a lot of times we look at the world and we treat it as though it's neutral. <laughs> you know, we're just you know, so we're, we're in this neutral solution. We're just kind of doing our thing, and it doesn't matter. But it's not neutral. It's actually stacked against us, which doesn't mean that you know God's not at work in the midst of that. Um, you know, the, the devil, the world, our sinful nature are always trying to lead us away. God is very much at work in this world. That's the whole message of Christmas. It's the whole message of the cross. You know, in, in, in the book of Acts, God is still doing his work here in our lives. He's saving sinners. But that doesn't mean that this world out here is going to be friendly about it. Um, it comes from a sense of fairness. I want to respect your opinion, but... Um you know, you may not be getting it back. Yeah, yeah. We don't need to respect other people's opinions always. We need to simply know what they are and how they fit against what the Bible says. Because some ideas are not worthy of respect. But people are always worthy of our love. Right. People are different from ideas. They have ideas. Right. But you have to separate the two. You love the people, you respect the people, but you don't have to love and respect their ideas. I, I, I'm okay with what you're saying as, as, a, as a statement of truth, but what happens sometimes is when that comes into how do we enact that, that the way that we treat people becomes unkind or, or mm-hmm. actual hurtful, and, and I just want to be mindful of that. Right. You know, in, in the way that we act with people with whom we disagree. as they deserve because there's a lot of people that deserve to have the mud thrown in their faces. You treat them as God says to treat them because they are creatures of God and we are supposed to be good examples of what it means to belong to a loving God. And you don't have to agree with people or even like them in order to love them. It's two different kinds of things. It is, but it's pretty hard sometimes to, uh, to love somebody and be like, you know, I can't stand that individual. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's hard, but it's doable. But so. you don't have to think about that part. Some people are easy to love at a far distance. That's true. <laughs> but I think that's also a mark of the sin that's within us mm-hmm. as we engage with others. Because we seem to think that love is a whole lot of like. And it's two different yeah. things. Yeah. You know, like and love often travel together. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes uh, when you love somebody, um, that, that can become a very complicated relationship. Yep. So, 
from verse 12, we move into verse 13. This is all one sentence in, in, in Greek, in the original language. Um, so, sin must not reign uh, in your mortal bodies to obey its passion, and do not present your members, do not present the parts of your body as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. That's a noun, by the way. Sometimes we have words that are nouns and they're also function as verbs, and it gets a little bit confusing. It's not saying, you know, about, it's not talking about the action, it's talking about the thing as instruments of unrighteousness to, like, belonging to sin. Um, but present yourselves to God as one who is living from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This word instruments, it's used six times in the New, in the New Testament. Twice it's used as tools. Once it's used as armor. And three times it's referring to weapons. And I think that that's an interesting image um, when you start talking about do not present the members of your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness, but as instruments of righteousness. I think it really fits with that image of struggle and striving to have kind of this military sense in what's going on here. Um, and, uh, and it reflects the struggle of the faith that we're not just talking about, you know, your garden tools. We're talking about matters of life and death here. We're talking about danger that we can present our bodies in a way um, where they it is used as a weapon by sin to hurt and to harm ourselves and others. Or our bodies can be presented in righteousness uh, in ways that um, as weapons can protect and defend. I, you know, I, you know, I think that that's a, a, an interesting way to think about what, what he's saying here when you, when you think about all of this in terms of resistance and, and struggling goes back to that it, you're not neutral. Your body right. isn't neutral. Right. You're, you're either working you know, with the righteousness of God or you're working as a weapon of sin. And I think we like to think, well, I'm not really doing the right thing, but I'm not doing the wrong thing. I'm right. just kind of here. Right. And, and that, I think, comes through here. You're, not, you're either this or you're that. You know, you can't, you can't be neither. Right. You're serving something. What, what are you serving? Yeah, exactly. You can't be neutral. Right. right. And I think we like to be neutral. Because then everybody's happy and we're not offending anybody. And, you know, we're just... We're nice. We're not nice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a mentor... Says, you think you're better than other people? Are you ever tempted to say, that's only because I am? <laughs> <laughs> because in many ways, if we are Christian and we're following Christ, we are better. Because we've got God working in and through us. And we should be thinking and acting better than everybody else, but not like because I am, but because Jesus is working in through me. But we should be better. I had a mentor in college. Uh, his name is Dan Flynn. Um, he is a, uh, he's a retired pastor. Now, he wasn't a pastor then. He was a, a, a teacher, and uh, he was a counselor at, on, in, uh, um, at Concordia Ann Arbor, where, where Chris and I went to school. And um, and. I remember meeting him when he interviewed for the job. I was working security, so I was at the front desk, and I was the one to welcome him there. And I'm a, I'm a big believer. You do your job, and you try to do it right. You try to do it well. And which you know, I mean, if you're greeting people, you greet them. You know, you smile, and you know. And he looks at me, and goes, "Oh, you're nice." <laughs> I'm like, that seems good. You know, 
you know, and, and he, I remember him saying several times, oh, you're nice. And he's, he's chuckling as he's saying this. You know, and, uh, and so he gets the job. And, and he comes, and I remember this interaction because, it, you know, it felt kind of weird. And, uh, um, and then he's talking, and uh, he had this phrase that he would use quite often that I, I like to use from time to time, uh, nice people go to hell. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm like, you jerk. <laughs> you know, but, but, but it, seriously... I mean, nice people do go to hell. People who go to heaven are sinners who have been forgiven, right? Um, and it's not about being nice. I'm, did I just say you shouldn't be nice? No. No, I did not say that. Um, but I am saying that the goal is not nice. There's another pastor in town here who, who likes to talk about uh, some of the things that happen, you know, kind of like on a community type of thing, and he gets kind of frustrated, and he says, it's the nice being nice to the nice. <laughs> You know, where, where do we ever get around to? We are sinners who are forgiven and redeemed in Christ. Nice is its own structure with its own rules. It is. And it doesn't always match with love's structure and love's rules. You know, and, and we're not called to be nice. We're called to love. And it, love as defined biblically, not right. as the world right. defines love. Absolutely. Kind of 1 Corinthians 13. You know, hopes all things, endures all things. You know, it's about truth. It's about goodness. You know, and, and all of those great and glorious gifts that God gives to us. And sometimes when you're loving, you're not being nice. That's true. Sounds like a parent. It is. <laughs> it seems to me that we uh, have been taught to call God Father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Pelagius, uh, Pelagius is kind of complicated in terms of his history, uh, 360 to 420. He had some, some false teachings, but uh, as my dad liked to say, even a blind squirrel finds a nut. Um, and uh, this is a really good quote from him. Uh, Every part of the body can become a weapon of wickedness, which will defeat righteousness if it turns its purpose to bad use. So the parts of our bodies, the parts of our lives, God has a plan for them and, and he, he has a design for them. And when they're turned away from the way that God wants us to be, uh, they can become weapons of, righteous, of, of wickedness. And then um, Theodoret, um, he, he writes this, By telling us to yield our members to God as instruments of righteousness, uh, God teaches that the body is not evil, but the creation of a good God. Therefore, it is property and correctly controlled by the soul, um, if it is properly controlled uh, by the soul, it can serve God. In this salvation, we do serve God with our bodies. You know, and, and, and we engage in this struggle. So, it says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. I have... Four-ish minutes. Ready? Yep. All right. So, sin will not rule, master, dominate you. That verb there is a simple future tense. You, you could see where reading this, you, you might see that as a command, you know, kind of, it will not, you know, you know uh, but it's just a simple future uh, tense verb. And I think that this is important. 
important because God is telling you what will be. And there's an important parallel between uh, what is being said here and what we see in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5 where the Ten Commandments are located. Um, in Exodus 20 verses 1 through 2, it says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So the chapter begins with the gospel. It begins with, I saved you. You weren't slaves. I rescued you. I set you free. And then the chapter gets into the Ten Commandments, uh, which we often translate or we know as thou or you shall not, right? And those feel like imperative verbs. They feel like commands. I mean, we call them the Ten Commandments. What if I told you that in Hebrew those are not imperative verbs? What if I told you they are simple future tense verbs describing a new reality of who you are, who the Israelites are, as people who have been saved from slavery. And he starts out with, you will not, you won't have other gods. Why not? Okay. But often when our parents say these things, you will not, there's a threat that's laced in there, right? And, and there is a bit of that here. Did the Israelites use the language in the same way? Yes. As a threat? As oh. A simple future? Yeah, well, I mean, people are people, right? They are. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I couldn't point you to a, well, like a specific example of that. But um, what, you know, what God is saying is he's describing who these people are now. And I think that that's what Paul is doing when he says, uh, sin will have no dominion over you. He is describing who you are now because of Jesus. It, you know, and it's, it's this penultimate, ultimate tension. We know that in the end, we are holy, completely perfect, saved in Christ. And that's a reality that speaks to us now. It is real for us now. We have everlasting life now. And yet we're going to die, aren't we? Unless Jesus comes back first. But the body is us. You know, we don't want to denigrate that. The body is us. And, you know, and, and, uh, and that's, that's key. But, uh, um, you know, he, he's, he's talking about who we are, even if we're not completely experiencing this yet. So he says, I am Yahweh, uh, the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm the one who saves you. That's why you will have no other gods. There is no other God that's going to save you. And that, therefore, I am your God. You know? And that, that is key. That's the heart of our relationship with him. I am the God who saves you. So his grace changes us and it moves us to an obedience that is not trying to get him to do what we want in this penultimate experience, but it's rooted in the love that we experience because he's brought the ultimate to us now in the penultimate. He has brought eternity to us here now into time. And so when we talk about this in the, in the uh, catechism, we say we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. We fear God sometimes as in terror because of the response of our flesh, to use Paul's language. 
in this life, in our flesh, we, we, we experience sin and we recognize God's judgment on our sin. And yet, we also love God because of the work that he's done in our spirit to give us a new life, to reveal his love and his forgiveness and salvation to us, to raise us from death, to give us that eternal life that we are living now. Um, and we have both of these things going on completely and totally at all times in our lives. You know, the response of fear in our flesh, the response of love in our spirit. And then trust is faith that receives God's word and promise that acknowledges our slavery to sin and receives God's salvation in Jesus. So for the Christian, you won't have any other gods. Why? Because Jesus, the Son of God, is our God who showed us that he's our God by dying and rising for us. Why would I want another God? Why, why would I want any, anybody else? And when I, I look at what he would, was willing to do for me and what he continues to do in my life. And this goes through all the commandments. You won't misuse my name. You will remember the Sabbath day by keeping holy. You will honor your father and your mother. You, know, you just keep, keep going on through it. Well, why? Because Jesus is my God and Savior. Because of everything that he's done for you. So it's not, it's not about the law. It's about his grace. Our, our, our relationship with these things has changed because of what Jesus has done. So when we think about obedience, it's not about having a master that's you know, driving us. It, it, it's about gratitude and joy <coughs> because we have a loving Savior. We have a loving God in Jesus. And that's it. All right, God's blessings.